Let's pray together before we begin. Father, we do delight to come apart from this busy world and to gather around your word. Father, for those of us who aren't present here tonight, Lord, I just want to pray for them, Lord, that perhaps it's the pressure of work. So many of us in the fellowship are, have jobs that really get busy around Christmas time. And I ask you to bless them, Lord. Father, perhaps it's the busyness of preparation. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask for the fullness of blessing to be upon those folk not here tonight. Father, that all the fellowship may indeed enjoy the fullness of your blessing at this season, Lord. Father, may this be a special family time. May we really know what it is to have our, our family relationships deepened. Father, for those without natural family, may they know what it is to have the spiritual family relationships deepened at this time. Father, we do pray, Lord, you'll lay on our hearts any who at this Christmas season do not have anywhere to go. That, Father, no one at all, Father, should be without a place on Christmas Day. Father, we delight, however, to come apart around your word. And, Father, I'm just so thankful that you are here in fullness tonight and you're able to teach us wonderful, wonderful things. Therefore, Father, I'm asking a special blessing upon us. Lord, may we be entertained and delighted by the things that we discover together from the Word of God. And, Father, may these things be, Father, so a part of us that, Father, the whole fellowship will benefit through the things that we study together. Father, we know, Lord, that we have to move on. There's no use in staying where we are. We've got to move on. And we know, Lord, that the subject that we're covering tonight is one of the important things that we have to see if we are to move on into the fullness that you have for us. Therefore, Father, just speak with clarity by your Spirit to every one of our hearts. And I just pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth may indeed be acceptable in your sight tonight. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Tonight I'm dealing with the subject of the organization of the local church and specifically with the subject of deacons. And tonight it should, well tonight you should see a rather good example of what we discovered when we looked at the question of leadership and the principle that we saw when we studied leaders and that is that where uh, a particular situation is not exactly covered in the Word of God, those who know the principles of the Word of God can actually find the mind of the Lord for that particular situation. And as we study the early church, we'll be seeing quite a lot about early church organization and how it relates to us. I should immediately admit that the whole question of organization in the local church is one that has been the cause of great debate, you know, down through the ages and is still quite hotly debated today. And generally speaking, people have various views about it and they're spread along a line that we could draw between two extreme views. I think it will be worth our while tonight just to spend a few minutes saying what the extreme views are, because if we know what the extreme views are, then we'll know actually exactly where we are among the, the, uh, all Christians on this particular subject. At one end of this spectrum, you've got those who believe in no organization at all. These are people who think that the body of Christ, being a living thing, should have no organization that every member of the body of Christ is, of course, 
equal with every other member of the body of Christ, which is true. And therefore, what we ought to do, really, is just sort of mix together and flow in the Holy Spirit and really not try and have any structure whatsoever within that group. And they're at one extreme. Up the other extreme, you've got those who like super-efficiency. And these Christians say, no. It is only glorifying if the body of Christ is so well organized that in fact the world looks at it and says, well that is as organized as anything we've got. And so they want the church to be rather like a multi-million pound, a multinational big company. And people up that extreme who believe in this very complex organization actually want a church where every single person in the church has a job and preferably has a title and actually has a portfolio. In other words, they know exactly what job they've got, and they don't do anything else, they just do that job. Well, I'm sorry, brother, that's not my department. You know, my job is such and such, you need brother so-and-so. And so they, it's all organized. And you have the whole year's calendar sorted out in great detail. You know what's happening at every half hour on every single evening right the way through the year. Really complex planning. And you've got committees and subcommittees and sub-subcommittees, and so it goes on. And between those two extremes, you'll find yourself somewhere. Okay, I must admit this, that it, when the fellowship first began, we were right down at the other end. That is, we believed that there should be no organization whatsoever. Actually, that can't ever be quite right, can it? Because, of course, the basic organization that any fellowship needs is to decide when you're going to meet and where you're going to meet. And as soon as you do that, you've got a little bit of organization creeping in at that point. And I don't have to tell you that, in fact, neither of the two extremes are that which the Word of God declares. The Word of God definitely finds a balanced position between those two extremes. Incidentally, can I also tell you that one person who actually wrote books on the subject um, of church organization and actually said there should be no organization, he actually made a rather funny statement. He said this, that anything which is organized cannot be of God. That was the actual statement that I, I read, that anything that is organized cannot be of God. Because God moves by his spirit, and his spirit goes where he wills, and therefore there's not going to be an organizational thing that you can actually pin someone down to. That's a most incredible statement. Do you know the most organized being in the whole universe is God himself? <clears throat> Everything about God is organized. You only have to study the Bible for a little time to discover that. Everything he's done has, has been organized. Just look at the creation around you. It doesn't matter which part of the creation you look at, you see organization and quite complex organization as well. Whether you look at a cell, whether you look at an atom or a molecule, it's fantastic the organization that occurs in every, every atom. There's no chaos in an atom. If there were, well, our lives would be rather explosive to say the least. There is perfect order in an atom. And sometimes the organization is so beautiful that if you try and make a model, say, of a cell, it turns into something really complex. But everything works according to law, even within a cell. On the big scale, you just look at the universe, and everything goes according to order. 
In fact, scientists spend their lives looking at the creation around them. What are they trying to do? They're trying to find what laws God has put in the creation. And sometimes it takes years and years and years and years and years of experimentation to find what the law is that God put into the creation. Of course, then the scientists say, oh, well, this is my law now. And they say, such and such a law named after me. I discovered it. And then they say, well, isn't nature wonderful? <laughs> and they define some very complex law and then say that, no, oh, it just evolved, just happened. No, it didn't. And we who are Christians, we can see, no, there's a wonderful mind behind these laws. Therefore, when you are a Christian sci scientist, and I do mean that literally, by the way, I don't mean the sect, Christian science. When you are a scientist who is a Christian, you can truly understand the fullness of the glory of God. He is an organized being. Just have a look at the way the planet works. Look at the weather systems. The systems as far as decay are concerned and the way plants grow. Everything is orderly and occurs according to certain laws that God has put into the creation. Have a look at our bodies. There's no chaos in our bodies. There's order in our bodies. Everything is organized. In fact, it's only fallen artists, you know, who disorganize the body, isn't it? Like Picasso, who suddenly does a portrait of someone. It's got three ears across the front of the face. It's only fallen man that causes chaos around. It certainly isn't God. And the Bible actually says God is not the author of confusion. So to actually say that anything which is organized cannot be of God is the most remarkable statement and, of course, is absolutely fallacious. The church is described as the body of Christ, also described as a building. And in the body in the human body and in the building there has to be basic order so when we're talking about the church certainly there has to be some order and therefore some organization the question is how much organization should there be and here some people try and make a specific law well you've got to be organized like this a b c d e and f and i say this no what you find in the bible is that actually the degree of organization increases as a fellowship gets older in the Lord and more mature. We know that as a fellowship here. When we first started, we had very simple order and organization indeed. We knew when the meetings were and where they were, full stop. And that's all we did. And we lasted like that for four years. But after a particular point, we found that wasn't quite enough. And if you look at the Bible, you will see that the complexity of the organization increases with time. Now to show you that, let's just turn to what will be our base passage for tonight, which is found in Acts and chapter 6. In Acts <clears throat> chapter 6. And we're going to spend some time on verse 1, which is absolutely full of information. Now remember, we're, we are dealing here with the young church. This is the young church, and it's now beginning to mature a bit. Up to this time, the organization of the early church was very, very simple. You had the twelve that God had appointed. The twelve apostles, if you want to call them that. Do you remember? They were eleven of Jesus' disciples, plus the replacement, Matthias, who was, uh, whose uh, replacement is found in Acts chapter 1. But those 12 actually did everything in the church. 
Whatever was necessary, those 12 did it. And they spent their whole lives full in full-time service for the work of God in the church. They did everything connected with the whole work. No one else did anything, anything else. They did it. If anything needed done, these 12 full-time men would do it. And then in verse 1, you see the need for organization. Now, it comes like this, first of all. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied. Now, let's just stop there. Do you see what had happened? They'd been so successful in the task that now the numbers in the church was increasing and increasing and increasing. The trouble was, there were still just the 12 of them doing everything. And it ended up at a certain point with 12 men running around like chickens with their heads chopped off. They weren't able to stop. From the moment they got up in the morning, they were scampering about trying to do everything that was necessary. And meanwhile, more and more people were being added to the church. And the same people were scampering around trying to do this and trying to do that. And without telephones, praise the Lord, and without all these wonderful devices we have today. And they were busy trying to service the whole church. That's what they were trying to do. And the number of the disciples being multiplied means that the headaches were also multiplied. I don't mean the literal headaches, of course. I mean the responsibilities of these men. And what happened was this, that even though these men were working so hard, because the numbers were increasing, they found that certain jobs weren't getting done as well as they should have been done. And if we read the rest of the verse, we find that they're beginning to fall down on the task. And here it is. So easy to read this, but it happens in every fellowship today. And it's a major sign that God wants increased organization. Verse 1. In those days, <clears throat> when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And there you've got it. And because these 12 were so busy, now some of the work was not being done effectively. They had reached saturation point as far as their own efforts were concerned. By the way, this was very serious. Because you see, Jesus had said to the early church, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Sumeria, and in all the world. Now, they had completed the first three. They were witnesses in Jerusalem, they were in Judea, they were in Samaria, but the whole world lay untouched. In fact, at this point, no Gentiles had been touched at all except proselytes, which we'll deal with in just a moment. But generally, the Gentiles were totally untouched. Now, this was a problem, wasn't it? They could hardly handle the numbers they got now. How were they now going to launch out into the world and see the world taken? Well, there's only one answer. They needed increased organization. And God has a lovely way of showing when you need increased organization. He just gets a, a little group of people who say, oh, by the way, I'm a bit neglected. And as soon as you see that, you know that the fault isn't actually that they haven't done enough work. The fault is that there are too few doing too much. And so you get the neglect. And here, the neglect is about the daily ministration to the widows. Now, I think most of you have been with me long enough in my Bible teaching to know that the, the subject of widows was a very important one as far as the Old Testament was concerned and as far as the Jews were concerned. 
they always looked after the poor and specifically the orphans and the widows and the strangers. They always looked after those. The widows were very important because, of course, they had no one to fight for them, no protection over them. And the Jews always made sure that they were looked after. In fact, about the same time, the synagogues had a special group of people. This is the, in Judaism. The, the synagogues had a special group of people who every Friday morning would go out among the crowds in the marketplace and go from door to door, knocking at the doors, taking up a collection for the widows. And they did that every Friday morning, and they collected money, and then all the widows came to a certain point, and early Friday afternoon, the, the certain officials from the synagogue used to give them money or food. Those who were temporarily financially embarrassed would receive a gift to help them along their way. Those who were permanently in poverty would receive enough for 14 meals, right? That's two meals a day for seven days a week. And that's what they used to receive. Now, when the church was established, they continued the same practice, except they made it a daily ministration. And the widows used to collect at a certain point, and food was given out to these widows. But, of course, the number of widows was increasing and increasing and increasing and increasing. And here were the twelve coming to this spot every day, giving out the food. And it was taking longer and longer and longer. And, of course, being busy men, soon they found they didn't quite have the time to do it. So you've got a problem here over the daily ministration. And notice it's between two groups of people. It's between who are called the Grecians or the Greeks and the Hebrews. <clears throat> now, if you read a bad Bible commentary, and there are many on the market, which I'm certainly not going to name here, but if you read a bad Bible commentary on Acts 6, they will say the division was between the Gentiles, who were the Greeks, and the Hebrews, who were the Jews. And the Greeks felt that they were being neglected. Now, that is an incorrect statement. The Gentiles had hardly been touched at this point. No. In fact, the division was between the Grecian Jews and the Hebrew Jews. But both were Jews. Okay, well, what's the difference then between a Hebrew Jew and a Grecian Jew? Let's take the Hebrew Jews first of all. These were Jews who lived in the land of Israel itself. They lived there. They had their houses there. They had their employment there. And even though the Romans were oppressing the Jews, they were prepared to stick it out because they were thrilled with being Jews. And so the Hebrew Jews were Jews who lived in the land still. And they spoke Aramaic. They didn't speak Hebrew in those days. They spoke a form of Hebrew, which is called Aramaic. If you can speak Hebrew, you can basically understand Aramaic. All right, well, who were the Grecian Jews then? The Grecian Jews were Jews whose families had moved away from the land. They were still Jews, but they'd moved away. And some had moved north of Israel, some had moved into Asia Minor, some had moved into North Africa. And for some generations, their families had been living in these places. All right? For example, Simon of Cyrene was a Grecian Jew. He was coming in to uh, one of the great feasts. But nevertheless, even though he was a Jew, he lived in North Africa. And so these Jews used to come, say, three times a year into the land just to celebrate the Judaistic festivals in the land. 
But that was the only time they came to the land. And they didn't speak Aramaic, they spoke Greek. By the way, in um, Falstaff, uh, one particular, uh, sorry, in uh, Shakespeare, one particular place, one of his characters called Falstaff actually says, I'm a Jew, he says, an Hebrew Jew. That's the phrase that he uses. Well, actually, he was wrong. He was a Grecian Jew, right? He might have been Jewish, but he was living outside the land, and that made him a Grecian Jew. Now, there you've got the divide. And I don't have to tell you, but the Hebrew Jews looked down on the Grecian Jews. They felt that they'd let the side down. Oh, yeah, that's right. You move out just because it's tough. We're left here really suffering. And so there was this divide between the two. And what had happened was this, that suddenly people were getting born again. The Hebrew Jews got born again as they lived in the land. The Grecian Jews were born again as they visited the land for the great festivals. And of course, having been born again, what they wanted then was they wanted to stick around. This church was so exciting, they had to stay there. So then they put up their tents and they settled down in the land. And so you had this basic divide among the Jewish community. You also had a few others called proselytes. Proselytes are simply Gentiles who've accepted the Jewish faith. And some of those were converted as well. And you know what happened? All of a sudden, the uh, people in charge of the church found that they didn't have time to do everything quite effectively. And so the Grecian Jews, who quite honestly felt a minority anyway, and quite a downtrodden minority, they started saying, oh yeah, our widows aren't getting quite as much as they ought to get. And the, I don't think the widows were complaining. It was the sons-in-law who were complaining. Oh yes, my mother-in-law's been neglected. Right? Now, I may not like her very much, but I'm not going to see her starve. And that's the type of thing that was going on. And so, problems were beginning. Now, there's, this is already an explosive situation. You've already got a basic split in the church because these two groups don't get on terribly well together. Now, one of the groups is claiming that the other group gets the best, and we're just left with the scraps after they've finished, right? And that's the type of divide that's actually occurring. Now, what happens here is what happens in many, many places. Instead of them going to the uh, 12 apostles and saying, excuse me, but we think uh, you're falling down on the task and we wonder whether you could do something about it. Oh, no. A murmuring begins. Can we just read it again? When you see this word murmuring, it's always wrong when it's used in the Bible. Do you remember just after the Exodus, the people murmured against Moses? Do you remember, remember that? And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. Murmuring is always wrong because it is basic dissent in the midst. I think last time I spoke about the ways in which Satan attacks a fellowship. Do you remember I said that the outside attack never affects a fellowship? The, it's always the attack from inside that causes the problem. And last time I spoke about wolves in sheep's clothing, but this is another way that Satan attacks. He creates dissension in the midst. And as soon as you see it, you know it's of Satan. Right? It's one of his key ways of attacking. Isn't it funny? Satan's only got a few ways of attacking the church. And you'd think that because he only does it a certain number of ways, that we'd all say, oh, well, we now know how he attacks the church. We're not going to do that. But we don't. We carry on the same old way. Isn't it crazy, the way that we do it? You see, if he could create dissension here, right, this talking to one another about it instead of going to the apostles to talk about it, you know what he could do? He could stop the work of God right here and now. 
If there had been a major split in the church at this point, it wouldn't have got off the ground. You know the type of thing. Oh, you've just been converted, have you? And you're a widow. Oh, well, hope you're not expecting the same type of distribution that went on in the synagogue. <laughs> My mother-in-law's been in this fellowship for three years, and I'll tell you something, she was better off before she came in. She used to get a good portion then. They used to do it very well. They don't do it in this fellowship at all well. And immediately, do you see what happens? This is dissension in the midst. Who wins? Only Satan wins with that type of stuff going on. And what it does, it actually spoils and ruins the whole testimony of a place. And the people who do it are often terribly self-righteous. They've got good reason for saying it. It's perfectly true. There was a mistake made here. But the way they're going on about this thing, they're acting on behalf of the devil now. Never, ever, ever justified to do that type of thing. And so, if Satan had managed to do this, the testimony of the church would have been absolutely ruined. The other thing, by the way, that inner dissension causes is this. Instead of spending time on valuable things, expanding the work, you have to spend all your time and energy just keeping the thing you've got together. You see, that, that's all you can do. And you chase around like a mad thing, desperately trying to keep those people who are with you, oh, we've got to keep them in some semblance of unity. And that's what you spend your time doing. Only Satan can win at that point. So what are the apostles going to do? Their answer is increased organization. And you see, there's no absolute rule here. It simply is that when it is necessary, then you must increase the organization. And every fellowship will find that, that this happens many, many times as they grow. They'll reach a certain place where, quite honestly, they couldn't expand anymore because they can't actually give the people who are with them what they need. And then they hear the, the dissent beginning, and you know it's time for increased organization at that particular point if you're going to take off. So in verse 2, eventually the murmuring gets back to the apostles. It always does, eventually. Or to the elders, as it would be in our case. Verse 2, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And these twelve suddenly realize that now, if they are going to do this ministry correctly, they've got to find the time somewhere, and the only time they can give up is time they spend studying the Word of God and praying. And at that point, they so love the Word of God, and they so take their ministry seriously, and they so see the importance of praying, that they know that that cannot give. I came to this two years ago in this fellowship. Now, up to about two years ago, I used to scamp around. I used to see everyone regularly, right, didn't I? I mean, I was always calling in and, and seeing people. And I reached absolute saturation point. The numbers increased to such an extent, I couldn't get around to see the people that I should be seeing. And I remember one morning sitting down saying, Lord, what do I do? I'm going to turn into a pat of butter if this carries on. I'm just going to melt away. What actually am I going to do? And I had to make a choice. And I had to make the choice between the Word of God and visiting everyone on all and sundry. And I said, well, Lord, the Word of God comes first, and any time I have over, then I will spend that visiting people. And I had to make a decision. And it was jolly hard. I went through a year or more of torment about the thing. But actually, there were no more hours left. What could you do? And that's what they come to here. And so they say, okay, then we realize that we can't leave the Word of God so we've got to obviously leave this particular ministry, the daily ministration to the widows. And so what they say is this, verse 3, And here 
is the beginning of a slightly more complex organization. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out from among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And let's have a look at exactly what they say. First of all, the people themselves are to look out these men. Deacons are appointed from the body of Christians themselves. They are not appointed by the apostles or by the elders. They certainly pray for them, as we'll see later on. But actually, it's the body of Christ generally that picks these particular men. So look out from among you, and these have to be people that they know well. They'll be moving in the body of Christ, doing things for the body of Christ, so they must be people that are generally well known. And look what it says. First of all, they must be of honest report, so that people know that they are men of integrity and men that they can trust. That's the first thing. Next, they've got to be full of the Holy Ghost. Now, that's terribly important. Now, some people would say, oh, no, you don't have to be full of the Holy Ghost, as long as they're efficient, you know, business-minded, know how to run an office well. That's the type of person we need. That's not the type of man we need. What we need is someone who is full of the Holy Ghost. Now, do you know why? The reason these men have got to be so full of the Holy Ghost is that their task is essentially a practical one. And the trouble with practical people is it's so easy for them to take over. Isn't it? We all know that's true. Every area you're good at. Oh dear, oh dear, beware. That's why we have a little tendency in this fellowship um, not to ask those who are experts in a certain field to do certain jobs. For example, a man who may be an accountant generally in our fellowship does not run the finances. And may I say one accountant in our fellowship that I know, it's praising the Lord that he doesn't. Because it would be too easy for him to move entirely into the natural, you see, over the whole thing. And what we need are men who are efficient, yes, but who know when it's God who is directing a certain thing. Keep your finger in the place, by the way, and go to that passage that I dealt with when I spoke on body ministry. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And can I remind you of the point that I made earlier on in this series? In 1 Corinthians 12, 4, 5, and 6. Now, do you remember this? We saw in these three verses the Trinity mentioned. The Holy Spirit's mentioned in the first verse, the, the Lord Jesus in the second, God the Father in the next verse. So, 4, 5, and 6. Let's take the first one, verse 4, first. In 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And do you remember what I said? That in body ministry, you must make sure, if you are going to move in a certain gift, that the Holy Ghost is the one who's telling you to move in that particular thing. It's no good just speaking in tongues, because you can speak in tongues. If you're going to give a message in tongues, the Holy Ghost has got to anoint the, the message. And, and that's why those who prophesy have got to remember it's no use just prophesying. It's the Holy Spirit that is the one who motivates the prophecy, and you've got to give it in the power of the Spirit. Then we go to verse 6, and remember here we're talking about the miraculous. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. 
And here, do you remember the word operations there is miraculous things occurring. And the reminder here is, look, if you are going to move in the miraculous, will you remember who's God around here? Do you remember I said that the trouble with the miraculous ministry is it draws people's eyes to it. And many, many men have begun in the miraculous, myself included, and then God's just switched it off. You know, simply because pride and other things were, were creeping in. And then God has to deal with our lives before we can move on. And many, many groups start off in the miraculous. And then their eyes aren't on the Lord. Their eyes aren't on that which God wants. His word is prominent. His word is foremost. It's on the miraculous. Must see the miraculous in the midst. And that's fine for a few months. <laughs> it can't last. It doesn't last either. Not if your eyes aren't on Jesus in the whole thing. And so this is a reminder. Look, may God be God in the midst and may he receive all the glory. Now look at verse 5, because this deals with practical things. The word administrations here is practical ministries. And there is a gift of the Holy Ghost, which is the gift of administration, which means you have a gift of being able to do practical things. There are diversities of administrations, but the same Lord. And if you are going to be in the practical ministry, will you make sure Jesus is Lord? And I've learnt something, that Jesus sometimes does things that efficient, clever, intelligent uh, organisers wouldn't dream of doing in a thousand years. And I think I spoke about that at the time. All right, if we go back to Acts 6 then, that's why it says that these deacons though they're not called deacons here, but these men who are appointed have to be full of the Holy Ghost so that it is the mind of the Lord that is seen among them. Then full of wisdom. The task that they do have, they have to do wisely. Whom it says we may appoint over this business. And the last part of verse 3 is the key to the whole thing as far as church organization is concerned. Do you see the little word this in verse 3? that we, the apostles say, may appoint over this business. And notice here, they are not handing over the whole of the practical running of the fellowship, or the church as it was in those days, to this band of men. They're not. Some people act and speak as if they are. They were not. This business means only the ministration to the widows. Isn't that funny? That's all. And all they did here, they handed over one task to this group of seven men. That's all the apostles did. Because they reckoned that they could handle the rest without neglecting the word of God and prayer. And at this point, they could. So one task was handed over, and at this point, one task only to that group of men. And the apostles, who were the people in charge of the church, and who are called, of course, overseers or managers, they said, this one task is too much for us. We hand it to you. And so it is handed over to this group of men. And then, verse 4, again, they knew their task very clearly. And we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, in a local fellowship, it's the ministry of the Word and prayer which is the prime responsibility of the eldership. And if the elders are fulfilling their ministry in the Word and prayer, and are able to do practical things and administrative things, then they will do it. But it is as the work grows that they find that they have less and less time to spend on practical 
things. And it's at that point that they hand more and more and more of the tasks over to this appointed body. So the rule is this, that you need actually the minimum amount of organization to ensure the smooth running of the church. That's what it's all about. And the deacons are there to ensure that the elders get on with the task that they've been called to. That is prayer and the Word of God. That's what it's all about. But the deacons, or the people appointed here, of course, are people who are given the responsibility by the apostles in this case, or by the elders in a local fellowship situation. All right, now I've already said that at this particular point, they're not called deacons. In fact, it was during the next 30 years of the church that the word deacon came to be used. So I wonder whether we could have a look at this word deacon. In the Greek, the word deacon is diakonos. And in some churches, you'll hear the group of deacons called the diaconate. And that's where the word comes from, diakonos. And diakonos means a servant. That's what it's all about, a servant. Now fancy that. People in the church actually have the office which is called a servant. It is it's masked by this word deacon. But when you use the word deacon, you mean a servant. And these are, oh, what's your job in the church? Oh, I'm a servant. I mean, it's not, pre it's not very glamorous type of uh, title to have. But the word diakonos means a servant. And it's used often in the New Testament, this word, but not just of this team of deacons. As I say, it took 30 years for it to come in as a recognized position. It's used often in the New Testament. And it's used of every single Christian. The Bible says that all of us must have the mentality of service. All of us must have the humility in our hearts of a servant. And do remember, even Jesus had to say this strongly to the disciples. You know what the disciples were doing? They were vying for position. They argued about who should be the greatest. And one was saying, no, I think I'm uh, going to be greater than you. Excuse me, I don't think you should be doing that. That's my job. Need someone with a bit of authority around here. And they were vying for position with one another. And Jesus had to speak firmly against it. Now to show the use of the word, let's turn to Matthew's Gospel and chapter 20. Matthew and chapter 20. And here, the sons of Zebedee, who thought they should be top anyway, having failed to get any headway with Jesus, now send their mummy along. And mother comes along, Zebedee's uh, wife. She comes along and she's going to try now and twist Jesus' arm a bit. Um, well, I've come on behalf of my boys, you know, and you will make sure they sit <laughs> the top places on the table, won't you? And this is extra sort of pressure upon the Lord, and he replies to them. Now, verse 24. When the remaining ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. And I believe, actually, they wished they thought of it first, but they didn't. And so they're furious, saying, oh yeah, what's this? Trying to get the top place, eh? Huh? Well, you're not going to do it, I'll tell you that. I wouldn't give tuppence for you. And so the argument starts. And Jesus, seeing the argument that's going on, he just says this, verse 25. But Jesus called them unto him and said, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and that they are 
uh, they that are great exercise authority upon them. That's how the Gentiles act, the people you call dogs. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, and you all want to be great, don't you? Let him be your diaconos. Well, it's the word diaconos. Let him be your servant or minister, as it's translated here. Be a servant. That's how to get great, a great position in the body of Christ. Serve everyone in sight. Then it goes on, verse 27, And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. And the word servant, there's a different word, doulos, meaning a slave. And I would translate it as a slave. Who would be your chief among you? Let him be your slave. And here's the odd rule, you know, the, the rule of the inverse, really, in the spiritual life. Those who are greatest should be least. And if you want to be greatest, you've got to be least. The way up is the way down, as we might say. Oh dear, many people don't like that. But that's the way of things. And then he says, verse 28, and that's the way I did it, says Jesus. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And here he's saying to all of these people, have the attitude of servant, please. I think um, Jesus best shows it, doesn't he, uh, in Acts 13. I beg your pardon, in uh, John chapter 13. In the Gospel of John 13. Where, of course, he washes their feet. And in verse 12, let's just read verse 12 to verse 17. John 13, verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant, or the deacon, as we would put it, is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. And so the word diakonos is used in many occasions. Elders are told to be servants of the flock. I remember one Bible teacher saying that a man had come up to him and he said, oh, he said, I give the world to be a Bible teacher like you. And the man looked back at him and said, that's exactly what it will cost you, the world. And that's really what he was saying. You've got to be a servant of all if you're going to have any position at all. All right. So in Acts 6, these men who are appointed, they start serving and notice they have no authority of their own. It's delegated authority. And they so fulfill the task that soon everyone starts calling them servants. Servants. Oh, you're servants. Because they showed what a true servant should have in his heart and in his life more than any other group of people. So, let's go to a book that was written 30 years, approximately, after the book of Acts. And by that time, you've got a group of people called deacons or servants. And if you go to Philippians 1, 1, here you've got it. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul and Timotheus, 
the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. And there it is. And this is such a hard task. I think the task of a deacon is an unenviable task. Because, you see, it is the elders who dictate how much authority and responsibility they should have. Now, in all of our hearts, there's this desire to be masters. We long to be masters. And in these ambitious days, many desire to be masters. But I've found, you know, in the work of God, that, that if you desire a great position, the minute you get that position, you suddenly find it's jolly hard work. And then you wonder why you had it in the first place. Or why you desired it in the first place. Because it gets harder and harder. I think of some of the people today who love to call themselves apostles. And, oh, great, now I'm now an apostle. And then suddenly they see they've got these squabbling fellowships that they've got to try and sort out. And I think many of them must think, gee whiz, why did I want this position so badly? I just can't understand it. Yet I found it's true that, in fact, all of us are servants. But the deacon is the man who shows what servanthood is all about, perhaps better than any other uh, person. And do you know the role of a deacon is a very hard one for efficient, capable men. Because efficient, capable men, of course, want to do it. And they want not only full responsibility, they want extra responsibility on every hand. And then they have to see that there are a certain group of people called managers around, elders around, and they're the ones who say, oh yes, now it's time to give you this extra task. It's very hard, very hard for capable, efficient men to take it. It's slightly easier for capable, efficient, Holy Ghost men to take it and that's another reason why they've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a very difficult task indeed to fulfill. Incidentally, you'll notice with Paul, Paul actually was still in charge of collecting the money for the church of Jerusalem right through his ministry. Isn't that amazing? He went into a certain place, he taught the word of God, he ministered, he prayed, he did all sorts of miracles, and then he said, and by the way, I'm taking up a collection now right, for the church back in Jerusalem. And then he gave a long appeal for this church back at Jerusalem and said, collect it up and give it to me and I'll take it home. Isn't that amazing? Now some deacons would say, hold on, that's deacon's work. Excuse me. You should be getting on with the word of God. What are you doing, doing such a practical thing? But the point is, you see, Paul could preach the word effectively and pray effectively and take up a collection and he chose to do it. And that's it. So he did it. It is up to Paul to decide what work is deacon's work and what work isn't deacon's work. And Paul decided that the collection for the saints at Jerusalem was definitely his work and no one else's. And he did it. And by the way, then, at one place, they were a bit slow taking up, he said, oh, Titus will c continue the collection just afterwards. Do you see? Now, that's the point that I'm making. Deacons are those who do the work that the elders tell them to do or give them to do and have that responsibility and the amount of work they have depends on how large the particular fellowship is and how thriving the work is. Nevertheless, having said all of that, it is a very high calling in the body of Christ. And to see that, let's just go to 1 Timothy and chapter 3 and let's quickly go through the characteristics needed in a deacon. And you remember when we talked about elders, we went through the first part of this chapter. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, we went through. 
Now, to show you how important deacons are, deacons follow directly after the characteristic of, characteristics of an elder. And let's read them through. They're very similar in many ways to the characteristics of elders. Verse 8, 1 Timothy 3, 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave. Right? Now, that does not mean so deadly boring that everyone feels like dying. That's not it. <laughs> grave means dignified and very serious about their task. Dignified. Always maintaining the poise in the Holy Ghost. Dignified and serious concerning their task. Not double-tongued. And this is jolly hard, you know. It's easy to read this, but it's hard. You see, when you are in the firing line, that is, you had a task to do and you haven't quite done it, it's it's quite easy to use your tongue to explain away the situation. Elders have the same problem, exactly, and it's very difficult. And it's especially difficult to remember exactly what has happened in that situation. Very difficult. And here it says, you must not be double-tongued. Aim at complete honesty. If you've failed in a particular task, like you've forgotten to give the speaker a glass of water or something like that, um, if you failed in that particular task, it's no good saying, oh, well, you see, I don't think the tap was working or something. You've got to be honest about the particular thing. You've, you've fallen down on that. And may I say, our deacons are very good at this. They really are. If something is not quite right... <laughs> I don't mean about being double-tongued. If uh, something isn't quite right, do you know, very often they'll approach afterwards and say, look, I, we're sorry about this tonight. We, you know, we'll check up where things went wrong. They're very, very good at being honest about the particular failures. All right, next, not given to much wine, which, as you remember, means not sitting long at the table. All right, so their arm isn't worn out because they're so used to having a beer glass in their hand. And I think the reason they might go to too much wine is because of the strain of the job, right? It's like eldership. You must not rely upon wine too much. A little wine for your stomach's sake, not a lot of wine for your nerve's sake. It's not that. <laughs> then it says, not greedy of filthy lucre. And do you remember, these are the uh, things that you collect, the possessions. And this does not mean to say that a deacon can't be rich. That's not what it's saying. But the possessions must not be important as far as he's concerned. In other words, he'd just let them go if that was the case. This is the same with elders, right? It's not the possessions. It's your attitude to the possessions which is being talked of here. Number nine, uh, verse 9 is very important. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And this means that deacons have got to actually beautify the whole doctrine of Christ and beautify the whole of church life. That's what it is. What is this mystery of the faith? It's Christ revealed in us. That's what the mystery of the faith is. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And these deacons have got to make sure that Christ is seen in them, that they have a clear conscience over the way they have acted and their responsibilities. So that everything they do beautifies the body of Christ. And specifically, I think, the whole attitude of being a servant that as Jesus was a servant, so they will be servants. I would say that's also true, incidentally, of elders, that they've got to show themselves, again, people who beautify the doctrine of Christ and the mystery of the faith. Verse 10, And let these also first be proved. And the word also there means the elders have got to be and you must be. And this relates back to verse 6, 
which is one of the things said of elders, that an elder should not be a novice, lest, being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Not a new or young convert and not an immature um, Christian. He's got to be a man who is tested so that you know he's trustworthy. And that's what this verse means, that they are tested men. And then it says, then let them also use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Or I think we would retranslate that as being, then let them render service being blameless. So that in their hearts they know their right towards the elders and towards the church generally, but especially towards the Lord in their service. All right. Then verse 11, you may have wondered about this. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. And you may have wondered about that because actually there's not a word said about elders' wives. So apparently it doesn't matter what type of wife an elder's got. <laughs> but it does matter, apparently, what type of wife a deacon's got. And I don't have to tell you, I think, that in fact, verse 11 has nothing to do with deacons' wives. It's a total, complete mistranslation in the text. And in fact, it has to do with another ministry in the body of Christ, a ministry which actually we don't officially have, but which I'll be speaking about next time. So I'll be back to verse 11 next time, and I don't want to spend any time on it tonight. Nothing to do with deacons' wives at all. So you can breathe a sigh of relief, you ladies. However, it does apply to you in one sense as well. Now, verse 12, let the deacons be husbands of one wife. And again, you see, there must not be a deacon with five wives because they are preaching definite uh, polygamy, whereas the Bible says, no, monogamy is the rule. You can only have one husband. You can only have one wife. And we saw that under, de uh, under elders. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. That again I dealt with under elders. Verse 13, now look at this. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, implying that there are some deacons who don't do it well, they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree. And a good degree means that they are honoured and revered. And that is why in the fellowship here, the deacons do actually have uh, the right to be respected for their ministry. Their ministry is a very difficult one and an arduous one. Isn't it funny? If you don't notice the deacons around, they're doing a good job. That's how difficult the task is. If you notice them, they're not doing a very good job. That's strange. If things run smoothly, then you take them for granted. And then God says they're doing a good job. Oh dear, it's so against the flesh this, it really is. But that's what it means by using uh, the office of a deacon well. But they give to themselves a good degree, and that also means in heaven there is a great reward. But it doesn't stop there. Look at the rest of the verse. And great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. And you will notice in the New Testament that often it's the deacons who have the miraculous ministry in the body of Christ. Look at Stephen. Look at Philip. They were two deacons. And yet they had spectacular and wonderful ministries. Why? Well, Jesus said, if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. And here they are. They have to be humble. And that's why so many of them get to this exalted position and have tremendous ministries. So indeed they have boldness in the faith. 
And there it says, verse 14, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. All right, having said all that, can we end for tonight by making a few more comments in Acts chapter 6? So let's turn back to Acts 6, and let's see one or two very lovely points that occur. <clears throat> in Acts chapter 6, and let's then read verse 5. Now having said, appoint seven men, the congregation get busy, and they appoint seven men. And here they are, verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose, and here they are, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, Philip, Prochorus, Nicana, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Now two of them we hear of again, and one of the others, the proselyte at the end we hear of again, the others pass and fade into history. You'll hear of them in heaven. Now you might say, okay, so, so what? This list is very, very important. Let's just think what we would have done with a situation like this. Now here you've got an obvious divide in the fellowship, Bognorites and Chichesterites. And the Bognorites are complaining because the Chichesterites are getting all the best things and the Bognorites feel second-class citizens. And they want a team of people to serve them well. So what do you do? We, i tell you what we would have done. We would have elected three people from Chichester, three from Brogner, and one proselyte from Barnum. <laughs> That's what we would have done. We would have done the nice compromise thing and we would say, well, this should keep them all happy. That's what we would do. So we would have appointed three Grecian Jews, three Hebrew Jews, and one proselyte. It's not what the early church did. Every single name in verse 5 is a Greek name. And here you've got this amazing principle that I spoke of at some length earlier on in the series of this submission to the whole body of Christ. They were so desirous that there should be unity, so desirous that no group would be put under, they said, okay, you can have all Greeks doing the job. It's a wonderful thing. Well, six Greeks, one proselyte. It's the most wonderful thing. And here the Hebrew Jews were so concerned because they loved the Lord that there should be unity above everything, that they were prepared, if necessary, themselves to be put under. If this were the attitude, if in every fellowship we'd really see God moving in the midst. The trouble with us, as with every other fellowship, is people demand totally their rights. They didn't do it in the early church. It's the most beautiful example of submission, and one that actually is very, very rarely spoken of indeed. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? All right, that's the first point I want to make. A beautiful example of submission to those who are weakest in the body of Christ. The second thing I want to say is this. The appointment of these seven men produced such unity that the church went on from this point to conquer the world and to turn it upside down. Look what it says, beginning of verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. This is the same multitude which in verse 1 was murmuring and speaking against the whole work. Tremendous unity was produced. And I have to tell you this, this was a major defeat for Satan. A major defeat. He could have stopped the whole work here. And he failed to do it because of the appointment of these seven men. It's a wonderful thing. And I believe he's never forgiven deacons from that day to this. 
That's why many deacons find the position so attacked and so hard. And incidentally, it, it's, the, it's the reason why deacons have been such a problem in the body of Christ. Do you know that that is true? There are churches today who tell you the main problem they've had is with their deacons. The board of the, the diaconate board, boy, what a problem. You can look through history and you can see the problems that deacons have been. Because Satan, having failed here, was determined he was going to get his own back through the deacons. In fact, the last one, Nicholas of Antioch, actually established this little heresy called the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Which, in Revelation 2 and 3, God says, I hate and Irenaeus and Tertullian and some of the other church fathers, they actually say it was Nicholas the deacon who started the whole heresy. And what's that? It's simply Satan hitting back through the deacons. The deacons are there for the smooth running and peace in the body of Christ. Trust Satan to use them to actually disturb the whole work of God. This is why those who are appointed to to be deacons, they must be careful and watch their own hearts. They're deacons in name. The question is, are they deacons in their hearts? And that's the important thing in all of this. All right, verse 6. When they set before... Who, sorry, verse 6. Whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And notice their appointment is by the apostles. And the laying on of hands there meant that we give you the authority. They have no authority of their own, but only that which is passed on through the elders as it would be today. There's the, the position. All right? And they prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the result of all of this? Look at this, verse 7. And the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. When a church really has organization and Holy Ghost organization, that is the effect. Providing the elders are then getting on with their task of prayer and the word of God. I just want to end by saying this. Every single fellowship will find that its development goes in steps. No matter which fellowship it is, those that had an easy time when they're young, they'll soon reach this time. And suddenly you reach a point where things seem to slow down and the plateau is reached. At that point, God is allowing you to consolidate the work, to build other foundations, as it were, within the work, to review the organization and get that sorted out ready for the next push forward. If you do not improve the organization at that point, the work will ne grow no further. And that's why around this country you have fellowships that are stuck at certain numbers. And I don't just mean a temporary halt, they're actually stuck at that particular number because they will not change at that point. The Word of God says this, as the work grows, so the organization must grow. But the organization must be the minimum needed for the smooth running of a particular fellowship. Never should the organization become a god to that particular group. If a fellowship should uh, become smaller, then in fact the elders will take on more of the tasks. But no matter what happens, the, there has to be this fluid fluidity in the organization so that the organization meets 
the particular work that God is doing at that point. It's no good establishing the structure and then asking God to bless it. You've got to wait for God's blessing and then put the structure around it. And as God then allows the blessing to come a bit bigger, you've got to dismantle that if necessary and build another structure or increase the present structure. Now that's what the Word of God says about this. A young fellowship will have little structure. An older fellowship will have more. Next time we'll be talking about other ministries. God bless you all. Amen.